This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. This is the 10th year of the podcast, 10 years of designers and other creative types talking about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Morley about her songs of social change. You know, sometimes you take something in a little too much when you read the news. There is something that we have that is filtering so that we can survive. And that thing wasn't there. Here's Debbie Millman. The singer-songwriter Morley released her first album in 1998. When her second album came out six years later, the songs were distinguished by her forceful call for peace and justice. They stood together under a tree in tall grass on TV Telling the world their story Her album from 2012, Undivided, continued her message of love, justice, and inspiration. I want you to be the one to find a way out of nowhere. Be the one to open doors and stand. Head held high, stand in pointed places. Morley has brought her distinctive brand of jazz, folk, and soul to stages all over the world, and she has even performed for the Dalai Lama and Nelson Mandela. She joins me today to talk about her career and her music, and maybe even to play a song or two. Morley, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you. Morley, I want to talk to you at length about your music, but first let's talk a little bit about your background. You were born in New York City, and are a Jamaica, Queens native. Yeah, that's right. How, how has that influenced you? <laughs> a lot, because I was um, in a neighborhood that was predominantly Haitian, people from the Philippines, from Greece, and Hasidic Jews, and Senegal. So it was a, a vibrant mix of people. And I went to public schools, as well as the United Nations School. And my best friends were from, you know, Colombia, Nigeria, Japan... Sweden, you know, so it really informed my worldview. And I got to taste the food at their homes and hear the music in their house, you know, that their mom would be or dad would be playing while they're cooking and and see that little the little dances they would do just in passing. And then we'd teach each other dances. And, you know, it really shaped my perception. And to kind of hear the same song in different houses, but with different lyrics. You began performing as a dancer and a choreographer and a poet. Uh, what kind of poetry and dance did you do? Well, I was at Alvin Ailey for a, a while, and um, I was really lucky to get a full scholarship there. And then I had the experience of having a really intense knee, knee injury. What happened? I had torn meniscus, but it was very dramatic, and like my life was over. You know, I was 18 and Well, 19, it must have felt like, like that. It. Yeah. Everything's done. I was in level six, but I had to go back to level one and do very delicate beginning movements. But during that time, I started to see the dance in my head that I wish I could be doing with my body, but I couldn't because of my injury. And that brought me into choreography. And so at that time, I think you began to teach yoga and meditation 
to mm-hmm. ex-convicts. Why ex-convicts? Well, it was a bit of a mistake. I was a waitress also. I had about 15 jobs and <laughs> in school and all these things like most New York artists. I was waitressing, and this woman who was a regular said, um, you're a dancer, right? And I said, yeah, well, I used to be, but I don't know what I'm going to do now. And she said, well, I have a class of um, teenagers. And if you can come and just do some, like, really gentle movement or if you know any yoga. And I just, I knew very little. I had taken a few classes. And I said, okay, I'll do it. And I showed up, and it was the Fortune Society on 19th Street, which is an incredible organization that helps in uh, the rehabilitation of ex-offenders. And so I was very young and surrounded by men twice my age who had all just come out of prison. And I was like, okay, what are we going to do here? So I did some of the most very basic alignment that I had learned in dance and a couple of breathing exercises and immediately plunged into taking classes, yoga classes, so I could learn. And I wound up staying there for quite a few years. And then I went and got certified to teach yoga (laughs) as soon as I could. But I learned from that experience a lot about really what's going on in society, too, because the, the first energy I felt in the room when I walked in was the presence of innocence. Wow. Really, and, and one of my students was 50 years old who had been in prison since he was 19 for stealing a car. How, did that, how does that happen? How does something like that happen? How can you be in jail for 30 years or 20 years for stealing a car? It's racism, and it's the pushing force in our country. And this is a, a great time in our country to be talking about it and learning about it and and having conversations about it and changing it. And it has to change. And we can't have a change without talking about it and admitting that it's there. So here you are at 17 years old. You You are dreaming. Okay, so so you're you're a teenager. (laughs) (laughs) You're under 20. And and you've had an injury that has changed the dream that you'd had about what your future held for you, what you wanted to do with the rest of your life. You end up um, very serendipitously teaching ex-convicts movement and yoga. How did this reflect who you were going to end up becoming. It seems like these two major, almost accidental (laughs) situations, an injury and a misleading invitation to teach, um, (laughs) profoundly impacted the direction the rest of your life was going to take. When did you start studying music? I recently started learning how to read music. A friend of mine, a cellist friend, great cellist named Marika Hughes, is teaching me how to read music so I can accompany her, but um, I don't read music. So everything is self-taught, everything that you do, everything that you play? Yeah, well, I mean, I ask friends, well, what's that chord? Can you show me how that, how does that look on the guitar? And I, I, I learned from shape because of dance, probably. So when did you start playing the guitar? You just picked it up and started strumming? Well, Toshi Regan, who's my big sister, mentor, wonderful, incredible artist, um, I asked her to show me a few chords and then I wrote like 30 or 40 songs with the same chords. And she was like, you know, you can change them up a little bit. You can. <laughs> you don't have to. Neil Here's Young a- did it with three chords for his almost his whole career. Yeah, but he changed them up. I yeah. would just kept going C, E, G, C, E, G. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, I learned some more. And so now I'm still very far to go with this guitar. It's a beautiful, incredible instrument. And it's just like the human voice. I had a vocal teacher as well. My mother is a nurse and my teacher was, she was an elder I got a chance to study with her for the last five years of her life. She lived to be around 91. She was in the the Met for 50 years, and Chagall painted her dress. She was this, like, walking history, amazing, mystical 
woman who vowed never to ever sing again or teach. But my mother was her nurse, and she had some kind of hip injury. My mother just kind of fell in love with her, and she convinced her to just try one student. So she gave me a chance, and then we fell in love. I just was there all the time. She became like a second mom. She's amazing. And she's the one who taught me that the human voice is the sound wave of the soul. In what way? Explain that. That no matter if you're a singer or if you're, you know, someone who makes shoes or an architect or whatever it is, there's a tone in your voice that is yours and yours alone and that is a connection to your experience here and the body. Like if some people say that, that wonderful expression where we're spiritual beings having a physical experience. And there's something that, that differentiates us all, and that's our expression of our interconnectedness. That, that Nobody sounds exactly how you sound. Nobody sounds exactly how I sound. But for a singer, especially when you're striving and you come into a little later in life, you know, I didn't grow up singing, I thought every time I opened my voice, I sounded exactly like Shaka Khan. I couldn't sound further from her, ever. I mean, she has this incredibly big, powerful voice. I just have a, a little, my, my thing is a little, it's a t- totally different color. So I love listening to her and just the way she would end a phrase. Just for example, one of the singers. And so my teacher taught me how to find my voice. And she taught me how to find my voice by telling me to fall in love with the sound of my own voice. That is the teaching for everything, for us to fall in love with ourselves. To really, truly love ourselves is to love the, that which created us or, you know, that big love that lives within us, whatever you want to call it. Because it's really difficult to love somebody else, truly, if we haven't loved ourselves. Were you just born that way or did you have to learn how to love yourself? Oh, my, yeah. I was, I was completely, you know, I got a good beating from an elder once. She looked at me and she said, you, you need to fall in love with yourself. And she said, I'm going to give you an exercise. And uh, What was the exercise? Well, she told me to look in the mirror for a year and to say it three times a day, I love you. And she said, first, you're not going to believe it at all. But keep doing it. Was it hard to say it at first? It was totally freak, freak fest. I was looking at myself. <laughs> I was like, this is so stupid. But I promised this elder I would do it. And, yeah, even uh, the idea of it is making me kind of feel nauseous. Yeah, but isn't that deep? Yeah, of course. But you can look at somebody else and say, I love you and mean it. Oh, absolutely. And all the time. You see. And so it, it changed something for me. And it helped me work with people. So I read about an experience that you had when you first listened to Maggot Brain, the funkadelic opus of funk and black rock. You said that I lay down on the carpet and listened to Maggot Brain and my whole world changed. Wow. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> that really I can see my by your face. Open. You're just like remembering yeah. that moment. And I was around really great masterful artists at the time. You know, people I really loved and still love very much and are very close to me. And, yeah, they played Funkadelic for me. And and there's a part in the song that says, the kingdom of heaven is within, the kingdom of heaven is within, with all these these harmonies and um, just this bass that just opens you up to another side of yourself or beyond your notion of yourself. That's what music can do. Absolutely. I feel like music changes my DNA. I listen to things and I change. it changes who I am, how I feel, what I want, what I need, everything. Yeah. It's amazing. It's a, um, tool. it's a tool. It changes the room. Mm-hmm. I've done some hospice work, you know, with musicians on call for like 11 years. And I, whenever I go into a room where this patient is all connected up, with, you know, with the IVs and the beep, 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 and, you know, they... 
go in and offer a song, and uh, just for three minutes they have a vacation from the, just the, the only sound they hear is the, the beeping sound of the machine or the or the television, and uh, you know they have a musician there and the vibration of the guitar or the, or the, of the voice or of the percussion instrument or whatever the instrument is. It's a vibration, and the room shifts; it changes. So, how did you begin performing? How did how did you transition from choreography, working with ex-convicts, and doing meditation and yoga to performing as a musician? Well, I kind of still do all that stuff. Right, but when, so, did, when did performing as a professional musician sort of rear its head in your life? <laughs> well, it's funny. I'm laughing because it started like in 1999 for about four months or three months, and then the label folded, and then I went Yeah, but back. you don't just come out and get a label, Morley. You don't just say, like, you know, I think I'm going to go and become a singer today, and let's, let's get this <laughs> deal with Sony in 1999. And is that, yeah. Or is that how it happened? <laughs> well, yeah, but I can't take any credit because the people I was surrounded by were just this great, phenomenal artist and um, very uh, already experienced and had great foundation within the world of music. And how did music you even business. get in? with that crowd oh they were my my friends they were just my friend i lived with um, my boyfriend at the time who was a musician and a great producer and artist is it true that you were once living in the home of deborah harry and iggy pop like an apartment they both lived in at different times yeah (laughs) you you got all the this good stuff man yeah we did we squatted there and um we had an incredible time and uh freezing during the winter oh really squatting sleeping in jackets and boots (laughs) <laughs> a couple pairs of pants. But, you know, we had a roof but it was had a little bit of plastic area for the wall. But um, <laughs> lots of music, lots of joy and creativity. So how did you get your first record deal? Because it came out and it got such amazing reviews. Yeah, talk talk about experience. that. How did that how did that all happen? Well, Chris Dowd, who was a founding member of Fishbone, and Hod David the two of them had put together this idea. They basically, they gave me a song once. Um, said, here, try this song. What uh, song was it? It was a song called Desert Flowers. And they said, here's, the mu- here's some music. Write something, but don't write a protest song. <laughs> so they knew you that yeah, yeah, that was yeah. your dead Because all of then. my poetry and my choreography was just about the destruction of us all very soon. Like, it was just all like, emergency. You know, everything was very, very um, protest-oriented, but like... Um, you know, in a, in a sweet young way, like, we are all dying now, you know, <laughs> it's too late. And then I, you know, really be, upbeat, yeah, yeah, really upbeat. And like, you know, intense lighting and everything was really fun. And I actually had a lot of fun, like lots of joy doing that. But, but I really, I really meant it. But so they were, used to tease me and say, don't write a protest song. So I, I came back and I wrote a love song. And they were like, oh, try this one. Then I wrote a ballad with their music. And I put the melody with it, too. It just came somehow. I think it came because of the poetry and, and the dance informed music. It's just somehow informed. It's all the same. Just ex- different expressions of the same body, you know. And they sent it into Sony. didn't tell me. And, of course, I never thought I'd be singing, ever. And, and it happened. Back. Yeah, so that's how it happened. And then the label folded. But then I just kind of went back to choreography and teaching for... Six years, five years, six so, years. So despite the fact that you got reviews that sounded like this, and I just want to read a couple of them because they're that spectacular, all music writer Tom Demelin called Sun Machine, which was the name of your first album, an impressive debut that infused your melodic brand of adult pop with folk, 
World, and Jazz. Martin Johnson of Newsday wrote that the album's songs recalled the socially conscious soul of the early 70s. Spin Magazine's Tracy Pepper said that the album shared qualities with Annie Lennox and Tracy Thorne. And Time Magazine compared you to Sade and Portishead. Incredible range. Aside from the fact that they're so wonderful, which I would have expected, knowing your music the way I do, I was really, really uh, struck by the range of people that they Mm. compared you to. Now, I know Jeff Buckley also appeared on the album. What was it like working with him? Well, he was a friend, and um, they played on the song for fun. I mean, I was a little oblivious to it even being a real deal. I was just like, you know, before, this is before the the record deal, but a real um, thing. I thought we were just hanging out and having fun. I, I couldn't believe that I got a chance to to actually jam with them because I'd always be in the other room moving around, dancing, you know, and, and trying, you know, choreographing to their music and what they were doing. Never thought I'd be singing with them. So it was just like flying. You released your second album, Days Like These, many years later, seven or eight years later. Mm-hmm. So you gave up singing for a while. What did you do in the meantime? I was teaching. I was choreographing. I know and, that you were uh, working with Max Roach around that time. Yeah, you, I, you've said that working with him changed your sense of what you wanted to do with your work. Well, Max Roach, the great legendary jazz drummer and activist, civil rights activist and humanist, being in his presence and working with him, it opened up a doorway to a cry for change through art. It opened something where I started looking at the world differently and seeing that you can actually cry out. It just shifted something very um, internal in my psyche and my spirit. Your second album, you released originally uh, independently. So quite a big difference from the big record company debut to an independent record that you make yourself. What made you decide to do it differently in that way? Well, I put it out for a little bit, like a few months, and CD Baby, and then Universal picked picked it up. Yeah, and in France and the U.S. and U.K. and other French territories and whatever. You're big in France, Marley. <laughs> I'm big on French food. <laughs> I love France. I love playing there. It's just uh, they're very devoted listeners to uh, you know lovers of art. Now you're going to play us a song from days like these, and from what I understand, it's a song that you wrote to yourself for yourself. Oh yeah. It was. is a song called "My Bed Is by the Sea." It's from your 2006 album Days Like These. Can you just give us a sense of what the backstory is here? I was really screwed up and having a hard time. You know, I had a bit of a broken heart. And I was worried. I was worried about myself. What were you worried about in particular? I don't know. I'm just like, can I curse on this show? Absolutely. Like, you're really fucked up right now. You're not really um, catching on to something that you need to catch on to. And I couldn't quite put my finger on that thing. But it's just, it's called growing up. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Okay. Oh, we're going to... So I, I wrote it to myself from the great love, the great, the God. Easy, baby, this time is a razor. Come now, come on, honey, come walk a little lighter. You. My bed is 
Thank you, Morley. That was magnificent. You. you followed Days Like These with another album in 2008 titled Scene and also another album that got extraordinary reviews. Um, Tom Jurek called it an album so original and poetically beautiful it deserves its own category. It's sort of the way I feel about your voice, by the way. Both of these albums included the track Women of Hope, wherein, to quote Jarek again, Morley prays for and celebrates women who suffer in the hellholes of the world, from American ghettos to the killing fields of Sudan, without one sounding preachy or holier than thou or precious. What inspired you to write Women of Hope? Uh, I was watching a CNN program about women in war. The opening line is directly from these two women in Rwanda who were standing in tall grass right under a tree. And they were being interviewed, and they said that the the soldiers came today and we will be left to die in solitude. Just to move me so much. And I, I wrote that down on a napkin that I was using also to cry into <laughs> the hotels in Germany. as a hotel 
after I saw that program, I really felt like I, ha- I didn't have anyone. There was actually no one around that I knew that I could talk to. And I wasn't right. Like, I couldn't just go out and take a walk or, you know, walk it have off. some tea or <laughs> right. go for a run or whatever. I saw I picked up the guitar and I turned to music because I was going to freak out. I, you know, sometimes you take something in a little too much when you read the news. It, there is something that we have that is, you know, um, filtering so that we can survive mm-hmm. every day. And every that day. thing wasn't there when I watched that. So you were raw. <laughs> I was raw. And so, thank God, I just had that guitar there. Now, there's a line in the song that I think about all the time. Ever since the first time I heard you play this song, it's, it's stayed with me. And it was inspired by Aung San Suu Kyi's call to action. If you're feeling helpless, help someone. In many ways, that this has become this song is is a, is a bit of an anthem for you. It's a song I think a lot of people ask you to play. Um, it's been featured in numerous documentaries. You perform the song for many world leaders, including His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Nelson Mandela. Um, what was it like to sing in front of those dignitaries? Well, that song itself has long legs. You know, sometimes we create something and it just it travels and it resonates. And it's not my words. They're not my words. They're Aung San Suu Kyi's words, which is so great. It's even better when you can pass on almost like a, some, some great recipe for life, you know. <laughs> but, yes. But any time I get a chance to play for people who have devoted their life to change, it's a great honor. But I also feel the same energy when I'm playing for kids or if I'm in a club or if I'm in in a shelter, working with some women. It's the same. It's a beautiful presence of possibility. And, and you know, playing in hospice and stuff like that, I always remind myself when I play in a club, I don't really know. There might, could, there might be somebody in this room that has a spiritual IV who's <laughs> having a rough time. <laughs> oh, and yeah. so I always remind that to the beautiful musicians I get to work with. Like, we don't actually know who's coming in tonight. So dig into your medicine bag, right. you know? Yeah, people come because they need to. Now, you've, you've felt that music impacts healing. You've said that you feel that music mm-hmm. impacts healing. In what way? Well, I actually know that it affects the body is because of my wonderful mother. She explained to me after one experience I had working, in, again, in a, hosp- uh, a children's hospital, actually, it was an infant. Five doctors were circling the infant. They are trying to get an IV in, and the little girl went, couldn't stop, you know, she kept crying, screaming, screaming, saying, couldn't get her to calm down. So finally, the um, music therapist brought me in, and the one doctor threw us out. He said, get out of here. We don't have time for that. You know, we're trying to get this IV in. And then she went back in and said, listen, she talked him into it, so just to have music in there. So I came just with a shaker, that, oh. which is an egg shaker, like yeah. a percussion instrument. And I just started singing this um, Kukurukuku Paloma, this beautiful old song, Don't Cry, Little Bird, Don't Cry, in, in Spanish. And her eyes, she just immediately, her eyes focused right on the percussion instrument and right onto me, and her body completely relaxed. And they were able to get the IV in. So that taught me so much that the whole system responds to music as an infant, this pure little being, you know, brand new to the world. The secondly is that our cells are made of water and music carries vibration. And so when we make a sound in the room that's harmonious in, in harmony or in time and rhythm, the cells get tickled. Oh. And it creates a, a space of wellness within that water, that body of water within the body. 
So my, it does uh, really, my mom. Yeah. really change you physically. It, it's an actual like medical fact. <laughs> so it's good to have live music, you know. Morley, you are going to perform another song for us on the show today. This is a song that is titled Sever the Ties, and it is also a protest song of sorts. I think that you wrote this about District 6 in Cape Town in South Africa. You wrote this, I think, in 2008. Can you give us a little bit of the backstory about this? Yeah. Uh, well, I was there, and in District 6 is where the Relocation Act began during apartheid. And I have a wonderful teacher in my life, one of my teachers. I have a few teachers, um, mentors, is, is Bernie Glassman. And he started the Zen Peacemakers, and I've traveled with him many places, Rwanda, Auschwitz, many places to do bearing witness and dialogue group work. He always says, try to listen to what wants to be remembered. And I, I use that in my music as well, that when I'm listening for a song, try to listen to what wants to be rem- remembered. Don't add anything on, which is hard not to add something Very hard. <laughs> Very hard. Talk for a moment about your bearing witness work. Bearing witness is to be in the room and to see what's actually there. So, for example, if I get a chance to work with young people who are incarcerated, instead of sitting there and seeing them as these kids that are, you know, bad or took the easy route, they're actually to see them as what a friend refers to as the transformers. They're transformers. They They want to transform their environment. They want to transform their situation. So they took action. And it took the action they could, the first thing they could reach for that made sense in their 15-year-old world, you know. Mm-hmm. So witnessing that, witnessing what's there. Sometimes you witness great pain. Sometimes you witness potential. It's a whole conversation to bear witness. That's how I would describe it, is to be in the room and to see what's there. And how does that help with conflict resolution in the work that you're doing now? Because it's easy to go off on an emotional tangent when you hear about a a conflict. For example, if you and I were talking or if you were speaking with somebody else and you said, "Uh, my father didn't meet me yesterday at the store and it made me very upset, so I did this, whatever it is. And I start thinking about my dad. And I'm like, oh, my God, I have to call my father. Did I call him back? I think uh, he owes me money or whatever it is. (laughs) The mind, right? And then I'm not in the room anymore. Right. And you're there having a conversation with someone that I'm supposed to be in the room helping or just being with, you know, facilitating or whatever my my presence in their room is at the time. Even as a friend, like stay in the room. It's nice. It's it's kind of a nice thing to do. To me, that's a, a very short answer of bearing witness. But if you're for me, when I was in Rwanda and I'm there with perpetrators and survivors and I'm bearing witness to them, and not add, trying not to add anything on, because I could, I could go on a whole trip. This is so sad. Oh, how could this ever happen? No, just stay in the room and listen to what they're saying. It's, it's, it's like it's, you got to be really strict with yourself. And well, I have to be very strict with myself because I can get very emotional about it. And then it's not about my emotion. It's never about my emotional experience. When, for me, when I'm working with people, it is never about my emotional experience. So how do these um, dialogues begin? How do you get the perpetrator and the victim in the room together? How does that happen? I, that's not, I don't go and do that work. I attended with my, my teacher, Bernie Glassman, and the Rwandan people are doing that, facilitating that. That's amazing. And so what happens is that 
Rwandans, those few Rwandans that were facilitating that, came to work with Bernie Glassman in Auschwitz and learned the practice of bearing witness and holding counsel and then took it back. And then Bernie went as their student. Okay. Because he's, that's what a teacher does. So, you know, real, the real deal. So I, I, I went there as well. And, as, and then I also did some music with the kids and the, and the, the elders. And that was a great honor. And I'm actually writing a suite about it right now. It's called uh, Witness. And I'm premiering some of them in September at the Rubin Museum. Wonderful. So now you're going to sing Sever the Ties for us. Okay. So I don't have my shaker. I'm going to use my lap. So I don't think you have to move the mic. You don't. Sever the ties of the old you and I. Sever them, sever them clean. Clip back the yellow leaves, focusing only, please, on the emerald green. Sever the ties of the old you and I. Sever them, sever them clean. Clip back the yellow leaves, focusing only, please, on the emerald green. I was never made for you to hurt me. I was only made for you to care. Anytime I look into the distance, one way or another you are there. So I sever the ties of the old you and I, sever them, sever them clean. Clip back the yellow leaves, focusing only, please, on the emerald green. I know I promised I would try, but I never said that I'd win. Cause after every battle, it's always time to fight again. I know we promised we would try to put our weapons down in the end. But after every battle, it's always time to fight again. Please sever the ties of the old you and I. Sever them, sever them clean. Clip back the yellow leaves, focusing only, please, on the emerald green. Woohoo. That's amazing. Thank you. Okay. So, Morley, the last thing I want to ask you about is your Goofy album. I understand that someday you want to make one. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> no, I mean, I think it'd be nice. You know, I, I joke about that. But, I mean, I have a lot of love songs. And um, it's hard to get through 25, 30 minutes in rehearsal without cracking up laughing, crying, because we're just really lighthearted. So the Goofy album will come the goofy after album. Witness. After Witness. But the, um, well, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, just an album with no metaphors. We, we always joke about that. How about that? Just an album of, of no metaphors, you know? So, Morley, your, your current album is a magnificent piece of work called Undivided. There's not a song on that album that is not just perfect. You have a show coming up in June at the Apollo Cafe. And for anybody that is interested in finding out more about Morley, you can go to her website, morleymusic.org. Morley, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Thank you. This year, we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. 
I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. 